Hello, and welcome back to the God Story podcast, exploring the big picture of the Bible to bring us back to the gospel. I'm Brent Siddle. Our guest today is Nicholas Petrowski, the president and academic dean at Indianapolis Theological Seminary in Indiana in the States, where he also teaches hermeneutics and New Testament studies. His new book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, is called In All the Scriptures, The Three Contexts of Biblical Hermeneutics. And I quote from the publicity blurb, no one reads the Bible without some interpretative principles or hermeneutics in place. The question every student of scripture needs to ask then is this, are your interpretative principles and methods legitimate and ethical? And so today, friends, we're going to be talking about how to study the Bible and really how to get deeper into scripture. And so, Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brent. Now, we use this big fancy word called hermeneutics. What does it actually mean? Yes, yes. There's, there's a bit of a danger, isn't there, in putting a big word like that on the front of your book. You scare a lot of people off. In simplest terms, it means how we interpret, how we interpret. So the definition I give in the book is uh, the theoretical study of how to ethically and legitimately interpret texts. And of course, we're in this book, we're typically we're just concerned with biblical texts. But hermeneutics as the, the, the skill of interpretation, we're doing that all the time. We're driving down the road, watching a movie, talking to your spouse, reading a comic book. You know, you're, you're, you're interpreting the world all the time. Uh, and so hermeneutics is a, is a step back to say, how are we doing that? Are we doing it right? What sort of assumptions are we making? What's going on in our mind? Um, and how are we drawing conclusions from what, what we experience in the world? Yeah, how does our culture shape the way we study and read the Bible? Yes, uh, a lot in every way. So we are uh, encultured beings. That's the way God made us. He made us in space, in time. Um, he has appointed our times and space places, hasn't he? Uh, as we learn in the book of Acts. Uh, and so the way we were raised, the experiences we have, um, our age, our class, gender, race, everything contributes to who we are and therefore how we see the world and therefore how we see the text of scripture. If you grew up in the church, if you're a recent convert, there are all kinds of things that uh, determine in your mind what you think is good, true, and beautiful, and therefore determine how you, not determine, but influence how you see the world. And I say very early on in the book that this, this is not bad, that there are influences in our own lives, in ourselves, outside of the scriptures, influencing how we see the scriptures, uh, as long as we know what they are, right? If you know you're Trinitarian, if you know you're Reformed, if you know you're Presbyterian, if you know you're Baptist, you know, you know what, what are those influences so that you can hold them in, in one hand when you read the Bible and then let the Bible correct those uh, assumptions, those presuppositions, or reinforce them if the Bible confirms them and affirms them. And so uh, our culture gives us a, a boost because you can't learn something unless you know something already. So it gives us a platform from which to learn, but then the Bible can also correct those assumptions and a priori beliefs if the reading process is, uh, is aware of those presuppositions. If you're not aware of those presuppositions, if you say, look, Brent, I'm just an objective reader. I'm a purely objective observer of the scriptures, then you will fall under the tyranny of hidden presuppositions. 
as one philosopher has said, the tyranny of hidden presuppositions. Those presuppositions will be there and they will control what you think you see in the text so that what you're actually seeing is just a mirror of yourself. And when you do that, then uh, the exercise of reading the Bible is uh, negated because you're simply reinforcing what's already, that assumption already in your mind about God, about sin, about salvation. Yeah, how can we sort out what our presuppositions are and be aware of them? I would say the most helpful way to sort out your presuppositions and be aware of them is to be part of a healthy local church, a church that understands that we've covenanted together to live uh, with each other and to bear one another's burdens, to assist one another in living for Christ and our evangelism, holding each other accountable. And in that side, that context where we know one another and trust one another, a few good friends can challenge us to see things in new ways. Moreover, one's local church should have a statement of faith, which should lay out in pretty concise terms those major questions about God, about the covenants, about uh, ethics, uh, and these kinds of things, that if we took those seriously, then we'd be far more self-aware. I think that's, that's the first thing, and probably the biggest thing, healthy local church. I was fascinated by your chapters on early chapters on hermeneutics. And you say, I think that a good interpreter of the Bible needs intuition and indeed even art. What do you mean by that? Well, yeah, in that section, I'm talking about how in America, I don't know what it's exactly like in New Zealand or where all your readers are. are I'm sorry, listeners are they're all over the coming world. from yeah, they're all, all over the world. Place. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But, but in North America, we've had a tradition for a while of reading verses in abstraction. That is to say, today I'm going to have my daily devotion, and John 3.16 is my devotion. I'm going to really meditate on that, pray over that, and there's, there's, there's great value to that, no doubt about it. And then tomorrow it's going to be Ephesians 2.12, and the next day it's going to be Psalm 43.6, or, or whatever it is, right? Uh, and so what that does is that uh, isolates those verses from their surrounding context, Whereas, this is something I like to tell my students, they kind of gasp. I say, you know, John did not write John 3.16. I give that moment to sink in. And I say, John wrote all of John. He wrote everything from the first verse to the last. And there's a flow of thought moving before up to John 3.15 and then flowing out of John 3.16 into the rest of the book. And so this flow of thought is what we're trying to discern, how the pieces come together to make the whole, but then equally how the whole, say chapter two, chapter four, chapter nine, affect our interpretations of the parts. How do they influence our understanding of John 3, 16, right? Uh, and so intuition then is trying to understand how all those things fit together and a kind of creativity to think with the author. Now, I would be quick to point out that I'm not talking about a wild imagination. I'm not talking about fervid creativity, uh, but I am talking about being able to think with the author, which means thinking outside of your own context, right? You're, my, in my case, North American, uh, Midwestern uh, context and all my assumptions about the world and the technologies that influence those assumptions and so forth, and to kind of get out of that and lift my head off my shoulders and go back into John's world and imaginatively situate myself in his context. So I'll tell my students that 
your your imagination is like a time machine that you can you can travel back to John's day to be with him and Nicodemus that day or to be with John and his church to whom he's writing in that day. Uh, but it's always guided. It's always tempered. It's tempered by the text. And so if you have some kind of interpretive intuition, again, hold that like you do your presuppositions and let, make the text or make yourself uh, evaluate your intuition against the text. Uh, and then now, now that's just one book, right? So we're just talking about John as an example, but John is part of the canon. Now we're really talking about something more complex. What is John contributing to the overall arch of God's story? And how is the larger canon influencing what we understand about John? So being able to go from the details, John 3.16, out to larger contexts, John itself or the whole canon, takes some, well, imaginative thinking insofar as the text of the scriptures guide that imagination. Yeah, is it, it's important to really see the big picture of the Bible then, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's uh, more attention in this book is given to that than anything else, because I think I think that's what can easily be neglected and takes the most work. So to go back to your question about intuition and uh, creativity, uh, I think a reader has to allow that to develop over time. Don't be, I mean, you, you, anybody who's interested in studying the Bible needs to understand that they've committed themselves to a 30 or 40 year adventure. A massive right? task, yes. A massive task. You're going to read the Bible and read it again and read it again and, and correct previous understandings, nuance previous understandings, engage with others and the things they're saying and grow in your discernment so you can reject those parts of uh, the interpretive world that are too creative right? But then also flow with the scriptures in the way they're encouraging us to think in new ways. How do we know then if our interpretation or our hermeneutic is legitimate and ethical? Thank you. Uh, I argue in this book, the answer is coherency. Coherency. So let's take John again as an example. I'm reading John 3, then I'm reading John 4, 5, 6, and then get down to chapter 7 or whatever. And my goal in reading is to think with the flow of thought and to interpret all the, all the verses and stories in between in a coherent manner with each other. So if ever I have an interpretation of, let's say, John 4 or something that doesn't fit with John 16, then something is off. I've either misunderstood John 4 or 16 or the narrative in between incorrectly. And so the, a good interpretation is one that can be a test that can be tested against the text of scripture and find coherency uh, between the various parts of the scriptures. Because uh, I argue in the book that every book is itself coherent. When, when an author, a, new, a biblical author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was done writing his book, he, he said, in, in a sense, this is done. This is a complete work from beginning to end. This is one prophecy, one epistle, one story, one gospel or whatever it is, right? One apocalypse, right? And everything is working together to fill out that whole, therefore, the whole of the book, the whole of the piece that's written. Therefore, a good interpreter can find how those individual pieces, story here, saying of Jesus there, a parable there fit together to make that whole. And wherever there's incoherency, 
uh, that's when something is seems to be off kilter because the book has coherency. We're not giving it coherency by our reading. We're discovering it. Yes, and talking about John's gospel, we can't really get into John without understanding our Old Testaments because John is so full of the Old Testament scriptures, isn't he? Yeah. So this is this is why the subtitle is the three contexts of hermeneutics. What are those three contexts? Well, the first one is the literary context, the flow of thought through John. The second is the historical context, the world in which John wrote what was going on in his times, um, you know, the Greco-Roman world, the stories of Jesus that had been circulating, all that kind of stuff. But then also the, the, the context of the rest of the canon. And John, as you're saying, Brent, right, John is asking the reader to pay attention to that. So whenever we see, if we're talking about John 3, whenever we see the snake lifted up in the wilderness, don't just keep reading. Don't, don't just go to the next verse. Say, wait a second. What are you talking about? Do, do I know that story? Do I know what that story is about? Do I know why Jesus would, would cite that? Do I know why he would cite it to someone like Nicodemus in light of the things he had just said about the spirit and the wind and so forth? Okay, hit the pause button. Go back to Numbers 21. That's where it is. Read about it. If you really want to do a deep study, try to understand what is the role of that, that narrative with the, with the serpent on the, on the stick doing in the context of all of Numbers. And then bring that information back into John and look for, here's the word again, coherency. What are the connections between that story and John's story that gives us this deeper insight into what Jesus is talking about? So the kind of coherency I'm talking about is coherency within the book of John. That's the, that's the literary context. Coherency with the historical world. And then his coherency across the rest of the scriptures. I think the clearest example for this, would, Brent, would be something like, just to get to the point, in the book of Revelation, when, when you have these locusts coming out of the pit, there have been some popular interpretations that there are various forms of military um, technology in our own world, and John is foreseeing that. And I just say, well, that doesn't really cohere with that, with that second context, the historical context. Why in the world would John's writers think, oh, those are, those are helicopters? They they would never think that, right? So we need coherency in the text, around the text, and running through the text. That's the biblical canon. And truth be told, Brent, that, that's how you evaluate all truth claims in your entire life, right? If I were to say to you, um, you know, I have little, little green Martians in my basement bailing out the water when it rains, you would say, well, I've never been to your basement, and so I really can't say that's not true, but it doesn't exactly fit, with what I understand about the, the way the universe works and what kind of species live in the universe and how water gets out of basements, right? If I said to you, I have a sump pump that's electrically charged and pumps the water out when it floods up, you would say, oh, that makes sense because I've seen that before. That's very plausible. So we do that in our real lives when people make claims. And so we're doing that when we read the scriptures too, uh, if we take the time to uh, dive into all those contexts. How did Jesus and the New Testament authors read the Bible? Yeah, I think that's how they read, actually, with attention to literary context, historical context, and then call it canonical context, or in the book, I call it Christological context, meaning Jesus and the apostles clearly believed that the events of the Old Testament were real history. They weren't mythological or fables or whatever. They believed Jonah 
Elijah, Moses, Abraham, and so forth really lived. Uh, and their stories matter not only because they're written down in something called the Hebrew Bible, but they matter because they actually happen. God is the creator of history. He's sovereign over history and he's directing history. And so therefore the things that happen in history are his redemptive, uh, bear the marks of his redemptive fingerprints. They, they, they are part of his redemptive purposes. And then we can also see evidence in the New Testament that they read, they read with attention to the literary context. Uh, th this is a nice development in recent decades in biblical studies. Uh, scholars used to say things like, oh, you know, Paul and Matthew especially would just grab verses out of the Old Testament, pluck them out of their context, and drop them down into their Jesus stories or epistles in order for some apologetic or evangelistic purposes. But they've completely ignored the literary context from which they come. They were, not, they were never about Jesus. They had nothing to do with the Messiah. And Matthew and Paul just ripped them out of context. And commonly when you read claims like that, the author then spends a whopping two paragraphs exploring that Old Testament context. So I, I think we have a little more work to do there. But when you actually take the effort to explore those literary contexts from which the citations come, lo and behold, you find coherency, that the New Testament authors actually were far more deft at looking at the literary context from which their echoes and citations, quotations came from. So they read historically, they read with an eye towards literary flow of thought and literary context. And then thirdly, they read with the belief that everything is ultimately at the end of the day about Jesus. That, that the calling of Abraham, the rising of David, the coming of the Babylonians, just you name it, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple and everything uh, are real historical persons and institutions in the Old Testament that under God's providence were carried out in history and then recorded in the scriptures with a goal to climax in the coming seed of the woman, we would say from Genesis 3.15, to put it in the ultimate context, the context of expulsion from the Garden of Eden and the hope of humanity's return. So everything climaxes, uh, the, the favorite word of New Testament authors, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So seeing the history of the events, the literary context of the, the literary nature and therefore literary context of the Old Testament, and then equally how it was all coming to a head in the messianic age in which they lived are those three ways that they read. And so that, I, I make that argument in, I think the second chapter, maybe it is that, look, if that's how Jesus and the apostles did it, good discipleship is simply saying, I wanna follow Jesus. So we follow Jesus in ethics, we follow Jesus in repenting of our sins. We follow Jesus in evangelism. We follow Jesus in every way we can. Let's follow him in hermeneutics, too. I want to come back to the literary aspects of the, the writers in a moment and talk to you about Kai's text structures. And Ooh. at this point, everybody turns off. Don't turn off because this is thrilling, folks. Off. Just wait. Yeah. But yeah. I just want to put pause on that link and just yeah. come back to this business of the, of the whole um, Bible because why is it so important to understand that the whole Bible, the whole of Scripture, speaks of Christ and points to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I mean, the short answer, Brent, of course, is because that's true. If, if that's what the Bible is trying to get across, then the goal of hermeneutics is to get the message and don't read past the message. However, in, uh, and, and so when it comes to, therefore, application, like let's say, for example, um, here's, a, here's a great example, the, the Isaac story 
the, the Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac story, right? So Genesis 22, right? Uh, take Kierkegaard, for example, and the way he read it, or the way it's commonly read today as this dramatic tension between father and son and uh, the Lord speaking and, and saying something that's contrary to his own will and how do we obey and, and these kinds of things. It's very easy to lift out of that story sort of postmodern existential uh, teachings that can be dropped down into any station of life, right? Um, in which case, the Bible is just religious, sentimental, spiritual advice. And quite honestly, Brent, you can get that anywhere. <laughs> you, you can get that in any magazine stand. This just happens to come from Abraham, right? Well, what if we read it as part and parcel of this larger story of God from Genesis through Revelation as one more stepping stone on its way, it being the story, on the story's way to its climax in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we see Isaac as a type of substitution, but also as a type of resurrection, as your, your podcast will soon be getting to Hebrews 11, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and so now we're thinking about Abraham and Isaac as this intentional story in God's economy to prefigure realities about Jesus. Uh, and we can actually say more. But then what that does is, is it encourages us on the other side to then make Christian application. If these things about Abraham and Isaac are true about Jesus, therefore, let's think about what it means for us right? So Jesus becomes this integral intermediary between all Old Testament stories and our own application. That shouldn't sound radical. That shouldn't sound radical. We're Christians after all, right? That's the way Hebrews and other texts are encouraging us to read that story, as opposed to taking Abraham and Isaac's story, lifting out some theological or existential or moral truth, running over Jesus, and then dropping it down into our postmodern world. That's just spiritual, religious advice, not distinctly Christian, or we were talking to get a little deeper into it, we would also say it's not very Trinitarian, which we want to be as well. Hmm. So, the, so, so to be Christian and to be Trinitarian are two of those presuppositions we were talking about earlier that we want to hold on to. Uh, don't abandon those. Those are good guiding principles that the Bible doesn't, doesn't contradict, but reinforces every time we read it. Okay, I'm a preacher preparing an Old Testament text for Sunday morning. That's if I bother with the Old Testament at all, which increasingly many <laughs> preachers don't. Shame on you. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening. Yeah. Preach from the Old Testament. It's fabulous. Amen. But Amen. how do I, Nicholas, practically speaking, I have a text like that that's account in front of me. How do I start thinking about how this text speaks of Christ? And therefore, how does it point to Christ? How does it relate to what's gone before? How does it relate to what's coming mm -hmm. after? And then how mm -hmm. do I apply it to my congregation? Can mm -hmm. you give, a, give some preachers some practical tips? Yeah, specifically on that one or... Any, any Old any, Testament text you like that springs yeah. to mind? Well, let's take um, no, uh, Psalm, Psalm 3. A friend of mine is preaching on it this coming Sunday. So we were talking about it this week, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Psalm 2, I've installed my son on Zion. Psalm 3 is a psalm of David when he's on the run from one of his enemies, and this time it's his son, but 
He told, how many are my enemies? He says, how many are my enemies all about me? I lie down, trust the Lord. The Lord raises me up. So he trusts the Lord and the Lord delivers him from all of his foes. And then right at the end, right at the end, the focus, uh, David turns to say, may all the people of God praise you or, or save the congregation of Israel or something like that. I don't have a text in front of me right now, but it's something like that. In other words, it turns from this intensely personal struggle that David has suddenly to now, Lord, save all your people, right? Uh, and so he was saying, you know, he was thinking about um, uh, preaching this in a way that, you know, we, we all have struggles, we all have difficulties, some of us even have downright enemies, and you may feel like you're surrounded, and the Lord will deliver you, right? And then he, we had a conversation a couple months ago, and, and he said, you know what, about the Psalms. So I think I need to talk to Nicholas about this. So we talked about it a little bit. And I said, you know what? Let's pay attention here. That Psalm is not about us. It's about David. It's about David, number one. And so if we understand that David is the son from Psalm 2, who is installed on Mount Zion, now we see that this is a prayer of God's king. He is surrounded by enemies and God saves him. Now, what does that have to do with me, a king? literally 4,000 years ago. Well, it's that last line, now save all your people. In other words, when God saves his own king, his people then are saved through him. He is the champion of their salvation, the wedge, as it were, through the enemies of God that we now follow in his trail. So I would say in preaching Psalm 2, you, you focus on Jesus constantly surrounded by his enemies. Ultimately, those enemies have their victory. They lynch him up on the cross. But on the third day, the Lord rips open heaven and rescues him, brings him out of the grave. And so now that recontextualizes that application that we were just talking about. Now I want to talk about, because Jesus was raised, the defeat of the ultimate enemy, which Paul calls death, has been defeated, and you too will be raised on that last day. And so now Psalm 2 has gone from generic, hey, your, your week ahead of you is going to be tough, but here's a little spiritual placebo to get you through. Move from that to this larger existential reality. God has a purpose for the cosmos. It, it is not all havoc and chaos. He's got a purpose through the house of David, specifically through Jesus. He atones for sins and is raised, and that just changes everything. If Jesus is truly raised from the dead, giving you a new confidence to get out into the world and to serve him without fear, because you know that even if the enemies of God do overtake you, you will be raised on the last day. But that's kind of too, maybe someone would say, that's too eschatological. That's not really application. You're just encouraging people to have, like, to, to reinforce their hope in, in, in that they already have in Christ. But think of it this way. What Psalm 3 is teaching us is that, that there's a particular pattern to the life of the Messiah. He is righteous. Nonetheless, he suffers in this fallen world, but God delivers him. And what we see in the book of Acts, I think across the New Testament, is that the life of the Messiah becomes the pattern for the church. We too are called to be righteous. And when we are, we become persecuted, but God will deliver us. And we know that for one reason only, the resurrection. He delivered Jesus. 
So if we understand that the life of the Messiah becomes the pattern for the church, and I myself am part of a local church, right? We're trying not to get too individualistic too quickly, but run it downstream from, from Psalm 3 to David, to Jesus, to the universal church, to the local church. Then it comes to me, right? Then we've contextualized our application far more the way the New Testament does also. And so then I'm not surprised when in my attempts to act in an upright, righteous way towards my neighbor, towards my boss, towards just anybody else in the world, I also am misunderstood, persecuted, hated, abused, whatever might come. I'm not surprised. I'm not expecting my best life now. I'm expecting persecution for the righteous in a fallen world. And Jesus is this beautiful template uh, that I can look to and think about as is church history with the ultimate confidence that God will vindicate his people at the right time. So I realized that was a lot. You probably wanted a briefer answer. No, that was um, great. That, that, that would help buckets. me as uh, sitting at my desk, uh, preaching Psalm 3. That's terrific. That's exactly, I uh, think that's really helpful. Thank you. Before we, because our time is just about up, but before we mm. have closed, Nick, because you and I could talk for hours probably about all the stuff. Um, Kaiistic structures. Now, I realize at this point, most of the audience will think, what on earth is a Kaiistic structure? But we should say this is one of the most thrilling things that have been discovered about scripture in the last well i think we always knew about it didn't we but it's, it's certainly come back into vogue this kind of thinking tell us about chiastic yeah. structures and how and why the whole bible is chiastically structured yes well uh, a chiasm is when a uh, a story or a pericope which is a passage or even even a single verse could do this or a poem uh, starts with a basic idea moves on to another idea, let's call that A and B, and then goes to a third idea, call that C, and then back to the second idea, and then back to the first idea. So if you can remember back to your grade school uh, learning about, about poems, it would go A, B, C, B, A, right? So it, it's a, the front end is mirrored by the back end. So that's a chiasm, right? What that does for us when we spot those is it helps us contextualize the, 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 the passage of scripture that we're looking at. Because the outer parts, the beginning and the end, tell you the frame inside of which everything else should be interpreted. And then when you find the middle, Brent, you're right. It's so sweet. Great it's if you're so a preacher. Sweet. It's great if you're a preacher because you, you yes. know how we used to have to, in seminary, they used to say, you must work out what, the, well, they did to me. You need to work out what the main point of your passage is. And I would sit there sweating away trying to work. And then when I discovered Kaiistic structures, I thought, praise the Lord. He's told me. Yeah. The author is telling you. Yeah. The author doesn't want you to guess at things. No. He, he, he wrote the text so that you'd be able to decode it, to figure it out. Right. And so when you see the, 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 the outer frame and then that middle, boom, you've got it. And you're right that you went to a good seminary, therefore, because you're looking for the meaning of the text. So it can be reflected in the meaning of your sermon. Basic. Right. Um, and so that middle portion is the main point. Uh, now, again, if you still have your audience with you, they haven't lost you by using the word chiasm. They really need an example right now. One of the coolest examples, I think, is in Daniel. So in Daniel one. And Daniel 9, there's this emphasis on, on exile, going into exile, and how will the people of God come out of exile? And then I'm sure your listeners have noticed that there are a lot of stories in Daniel that seem very familiar, right? So Daniel in the lion's den, 
And then Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, they look really, they, they feel kind of similar, right? Same, same basic concept. Mm. You must bow down to the Babylonian king or gods. No, we'll be faithful Yahweh. Okay, well, then you're going to be killed. Lo and behold, God saves them. Very similar, right? Uh, and then other things, some of the dreams Daniel has, the beasts, the statues, and these kinds of things, right? Well, it's a chiasm. It's a chiasm. And so exile is then the context. How do people live and endure when they're, they're seem so far out of God's God's plan, God's purposes. Exile is just traumatic for the people of God, right? And then right in the middle, at the end of chapter four, is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the one who's creating all the oppression, saying that uh, there's no God like Yahweh. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He does according, I'm doing this out of order, sorry. <laughs> he does according to his will in heaven and amongst all the inhabitants of the earth. That's the point. For a people in exile, that's the context. To hear your God has not been defeated, your God has not been bested, nor has he turned his back on you. Rather, he does everything according to his will in heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And people like Nebuchadnezzar are, you know, grasshoppers compared to the eternal sovereign power of God. You've not been forgotten. The covenant has not been ditched into the trash can. And uh, the Lord is continuing to work his mysterious purposes, and he will preserve you and spare you and eventually save you out of exile. For a people who are suffering under oppression, that's a glorious story, mm. as opposed to, ah, here, here are 10 stories about Daniel. Uh, each one has a little moralistic fable for you, right? Mm. So finding those chiasms is quite glorious. And it is. Yeah, I think if you love, um, I'm just thinking the Lord must have, a, he has the mind of a, a, a jigsaw maker, a detective, a puzzle writer. He's, he has this, you're going to be blown away by how God has, has structured scripture. So the whole of Daniel then you're telling me is a massive chiastic structure. With Up to one side, nine. with one part reflecting the other, the one half reflecting the other half and something in the middle. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a turn in chapter 10. So yep. it's kind of like two parts of Daniel, the chiasm in one through nine, and then 10 to 12 is another part. Yeah, mm. I think so. Okay, well, what are some good, as we close, what are some good resources you can recommend to mm. people who, who really want to get deeper into studying their Bibles, be they books about, are there any, I only know about one or two books on chiastic structures, but generally encyclopedias, <laughs> yeah. books, whatever. The th three come to mind. One is by um, Vaughn Roberts. It's called God's Big Picture. Yep. Uh, if, if you're wondering, you heard me say a few times, how do the parts fill into the whole? How does the whole inform the parts? If you've never thought about that or, or never read the Bible as a beginning to end one whole piece with 66 parts, right? Six, six books. Uh, God's Big Picture is only 140 pages, maybe gets right to the point. It's by a guy named Vaughn Roberts. It's modeled off of uh, Graham Goldsworthy's Gospel and Kingdom. So I could just equally recommend either Gospel and Kingdom or God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts or both. They're both wonderful. Um, a few years ago, I signed to my students uh, T. Desmond Alexander's book, From Eden to the New Jerusalem, and they loved it. I loved it too. I was thrilled to see them eat it up. Uh, it's a beautiful um, overview of major biblical themes that start in the Garden of Eden and climax when Jesus returns. It is beautiful. Um, then I can't resist recommending the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, uh, published by IVP. 
probably more than 20 years ago now, so it's not very new, but the, the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology has articles and essays on every biblical theological theme you can imagine. Um, an overview of each book of the Bible. Uh, it's just a beautiful piece of, uh, uh, beautiful dictionary. It's big, it's not cheap, but it's totally worth it. Skip two or three lunches to get the New Dictionary of Biblical <laughs> Theology by, uh, by IVP Academic. Um, I forget what year it is, but I think it was, I think, I think it was edited by Goldsworthy. Come to think of it. It may, it may very well have been. Yeah. I think yes. he'd been one of the editors. Yeah. And, and, and anything you can get your hands on by Graham Goldsworthy. His work has been so influential, influential for me, hermeneutically, theologically, can't, uh, can't resist recommending his books all day long. No, he taught me at theological college. Mm, you're blessed. Mm, I think it was his last, uh, it might have been his last, full year as on as a full-time lecturer i'm not quite sure but he was oh he was amazing mm. nicholas, yeah absolutely wonderful nicholas petrowski the president and academic dean at indianapolis theological seminary in indiana in the states where he teaches hermeneutics or interpretation and new testament <laughs> studies and his new book which i can recommend if you want to get deeper into how all this works, it's fabulous. Uh, from IVP InterVarsity Press America, it's called In All the Scriptures, The Three Contexts of Biblical Hermeneutics. And Nicholas, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Brent. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.